going to be reading this morning from Nehemiah chapter 2. And uh, we uh, looked at the beginning of that chapter last week as uh, Pastor Isaac preached on that. Today we're beginning at verse 9 and we're going to be reading through to the end of the chapter. These are the words of God uh, given to us through his servant Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, that is the river Euphrates, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned." And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Father, fill our vision this morning with a picture of your glory. For it was your glory that Nehemiah lived for. That was his priority in his life, that you, the glorious God, would indeed receive glory through him, his, his own life, but also in the lives of your people and ultimately in all the world. Lord, that is what you are working towards, where one day all things will bow before you and your majesty and glory. Lord, today, help us bow in our hearts. Help us surrender in our lives and teach us what it is to be the people of God, that we might honour you and bring glory to your name. Amen. It had been a pretty long and arduous journey, around about uh, 2,000 kilometres of rugged terrain and desert, travelling at an average of around about 20 kilometres a day. So after almost four months after they had begun this journey there in Babylon, Nehemiah and his entourage had finally arrived 
in Judah, there overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And as he casts his eye over that scene before him, Nehemiah remembers back to that conversation with his brother Hanani almost a year ago. It was there and then that he had first heard of the terrible state of the city of Jerusalem and its people, the Nehemiah's people, God's people. And on hearing this news, Nehemiah had wept and he had mourned over that situation, over the fact that the people were having to endure such hardship, yes, but more so over the fact that their shame reflected upon God and his great name. I mean, after all, this was indeed the city that God had set apart to be the earthly place where his glory would dwell. It was the focal point of his glorious kingdom and reign there in those Old Testament times. The surrounding nations were meant to see in the greatness of this city a glimpse of the greatness and glory of God. They were meant to see God's protection, his strength and security seen in the strength of its walls and its gates. They were meant to see God's majesty and holiness there in that, that amazing temple that had been built and in the sacrifices that took place in and around that, that temple. But they were also meant to see God's goodness and faithfulness and mercy in the lives of its people. Nehemiah's heart had been broken and he'd prayed and he had fasted regularly for around about four months there back in Babylon confessing his own sin, confessing the sins of the people, admitting that you know, the reason that the city was in such a poor state, the reason, the reason that the, the whole region of Judah was in such a poor state and that the people were living in shame was because of the fact that they had been guilty of sinning against God. The mess they were in was a result of their blatant and willful disobedience and rebellion towards God. They had broken the covenant with him. And Nehemiah had prayed, asking God to forgive and remain true to his promises that one day he would bring his people back to that city, to this land of Israel, where he would restore them and that his name would once again be worshipped and glorified by all. That was the vision that filled Nehemiah's mind and his heart and which motivated him in all of his life, in all of the things that he did and what he was about to do for God. God had given Nehemiah this heart. He had given Nehemiah this heart to accomplish this rebuilding work. And, and now here, now was Nehemiah there standing, looking over the city, seeing its brokenness, seeing all the walls tum, you know, sort of broken down and lying in piles of rubble and that sort of stuff, seeing the devastation of the land. And yet in the midst of that seeing or having a confidence, a great confidence in God, knowing that God's gracious provision would ensure that he would have all that he would need and all the people would need for this imposing task that lay before them. Why was Nehemiah so confident in this? It was because, after all, he had already seen God's amazing provision there in his life. He had seen God's provision in the favour of the Persian king, Artaxerxes, who had granted Nehemiah resources for the rebuilding and safe passage to Jerusalem. We see that in the, uh, the verses 7 to 9 of chapter 2, where it says this, Nehemiah goes before the king and like... Remember, this is the same king who had already sent a letter to, to, to stop the work that had started to take place in Jerusalem, that rebuilding work, some 20 years earlier. Artaxerxes had sent a letter in response to, uh, to the opposition of the people of God there in that place. You know, They had said, King, if they rebuild this city, then you're going to have a rebellion on your hands. And so Artaxerxes had written a letter and said, Right, the work is to stop and it's not to start again until I say so. 
Nehemiah was going before this king, asking him to change his mind, and not an easy thing for a king to do. Nehemiah says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And also a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Now, Nehemiah had, uh, had, had gone before the king. The king had said, Nehemiah, what is it that's on your heart? What do you want from me? And Nehemiah says, I want to go back and I want to rebuild this city of my fathers, of my people, of God's people. I want to rebuild it. It would have been a, a great sacrifice for this king, Artaxerxes, to let Nehemiah go and do that because we're told that Nehemiah was, was his cupbearer. He was a, an incredibly trusted person in the king's palace. In fact, he was the person who was probably closest to the king after the queen. This king depended upon Nehemiah immensely. And so for Nehemiah to ask this, it was going to be a great, it's going to come at great personal cost to King Artaxerxes. And yet he asks it and he's been praying. He's already been praying for four months that God, you know, if, if you're in this, then, then you need to change the king's heart. And God did that. But not only did he change the king's heart, but he also put it upon the king's heart to say to Nehemiah, what else, Nehemiah, do you need? And Nehemiah says, well, you know what? Some, some letters to the governors of the, beyond, of, of the regions beyond the river because I need safe passage through to get to Jerusalem. I need to have you know, your seal of approval on me to, to tell these guys that you know, I've got your authority to go through these places. And then also, if it pleases the king, I'd really like timber to rebuild the place with as well. Can you give me that too? And not just for the city and the temple, but also for the house that I'm going to live in as well. And Artaxerxes agreed to all these things. And Nehemiah sees in that the hand of God because he says, at the end of, in the end of verse 8, it says, And the king granted me what I asked. Why? Not because I was a really persuasive person and was really liked by the king, but because the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah saw in all of these things, all of these decisions of the king, that God was at work and that the hand of God was upon Nehemiah for this task. And so Nehemiah was able to go with a great deal of confidence, knowing that God was with him and with his people. as we come to our passage this morning, it says, And I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. They let me go through, and now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. In other words, this, these really imposing um, you know, military might of the day. These were like you know, Nehemiah riding into Jerusalem with all these tanks you know, behind him. You know, There's a pretty imposing kind of military force. And the fact that Nehemiah rides into the city flanked by these people, Nehemiah also saw as a testimony to the king's seal of approval on Nehemiah, but also very much so the fact that, that, God, that Nehemiah knew that God was in his corner. That God was in his corner. As we sit here in our pews this morning and we think about our lives, we think about the challenges that face us in life, living for God. And we think about perhaps some of the, uh, the, the hardships that we struggle with. As the people of God, we can know with great confidence and assurance that our God is with us, that he is in our corner. Did you know that? That God is in your corner today because he loves you. 
and because when he saved you, when he first opened up your eyes to the, to the truth of the gospel and to the, the need for you to have your sins forgiven in Jesus Christ, when God began that work in you, he not only just, he only just was, wasn't about just saving you and bringing in his king, but he, was, he had a purpose in mind for your whole life, that you would live for him and for his glory. And that he would be able to use you in building up his kingdom here on earth. And as, you, as, we, as we go about our lives, we're reminded just in, in, this particular, in, just in this particular part here, it reminds us in, in Nehemiah's experience, it reminds us for ourselves that, you know what? God has a purpose and, that is, and his purpose is to bring glory to his name, but he wants to do that through you and in your life and in the various places that he takes you in the world. And he promises to be with you in that. Today, God is in your corner as his child. Well, up until now, things had been progressing exceptionally well. If it was a movie, the, you know, you'd have that wonderful, uh, you know, sort of uh, victorious kind of, you know, that, that music, the sort of, you know, the celebratory kind of music, the, the victorious kind of, you know, you musicians, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, you people who love music, movies, you know how the, the music really makes the movie, that kind of thing. But you know, so things are going really, really well, but all of a sudden, key the foreboding music. You know, all of a sudden the music changes and then all of a sudden there is that, that kind of foreboding kind of music. Oh, oh, what's coming next? It's like Darth Vader, the Imperial March, you know, dun, 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 dun. Yep. <laughs> Key the foreboding music because trouble was beginning to brew on the horizon. And that trouble was in the form of some local governors identified here as Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant. Look at verse 10. But when these men heard this, when they saw you know, that, you know, that Nehemiah was riding in with this, into town with all of this army behind him and all of these resources, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel or the people of God. They were greatly displeased that Nehemiah had showed up on the scene and now threatened to undermine their power and their influence in the region. This guy was going to completely upset the apple car. Of course, this opposition was just the start of what would quickly become some very serious and dangerous opposition to Nehemiah and to the people of God and the rebuilding work. Well, as we go through this passage, as we get to, to, uh, to verse 11, we see that it's most likely after resting for a period of three days, Nehemiah wastes no time in surveying the situation. We see that in verses 11 through to 16, which, which kind of outline the route that Nehemiah takes at night time. He sort of goes out on this nighttime reconnaissance mission just to, to survey the, the situation, to survey the city's walls and the gates and that sort of thing. And as we, we read through that, we see that as he goes through the different gates, as, as he goes past the different gates and, and sees the walls and that sort of stuff, he sees all these things that have been, you know, these stones, these huge, big stones that were, that, that were once the wall itself that have basically been torn down and were just sitting on top of each other and broken around, around about each other. As he saw the gates that have been burned and charred by fire, these, these, these remains of this burnt out wood and that sort of thing. As he sees these, he sees that uh, you know, there's, there's devastation. And in some places we read it was totally impassable for Nehemiah and the, and the mount that he was on. And so he had to turn back. And what we're meant to see here in these verses, we're meant to get this picture of, of complete and utter devastation in the city. And as Nehemiah surveys this, his, this plan is formulating in his mind. 
One of the things that, that comes out in this passage is that, that Nehemiah's got to be really secretive about this. Look at verse 12. He says, And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And then in verse 16, it says, he says, You know, and I... And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people who were to do the work. I went out by night. He went out by night. Very secretive. Because Nehemiah was very... He, he, he didn't know who he could trust at that particular point there in that, in that city. And he didn't want to... Uh, you know, he didn't want his opponents to gain the upper hand and to, uh, to quickly raise opposition that would stop the work before it even started. And so he's really clever and he's really careful about how he goes about doing this reconnaissance work. But with a clear understanding of the situation, this plan formulated in his mind, Nehemiah comes to address the people in verse 17. And he says, I said to the people, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. You see the trouble we are in. Nehemiah is urging the people to take a good look at what is around about them. And you think, surely these people would know what things look like, wouldn't they? I mean, they were living there in the land. As they got up every morning, as they went about their, their work and, and what, they ever, whatever, what they did during the day, there right before them was this complete scene of devastation. I mean, they would have had to have worked, you know, worked around all of this rubble and all, the, all of the charred remains of the gates and things like that. They would have been confronted with it day after day after day after day. And yet Nehemiah says, take a good look around you and see the trouble we are in. I think one of the reasons why Nehemiah says that is because the people indeed had, had, had become just so used to, to things being what they were. And when you get so used to things being like they are, you kind of grow a little bit apathetic to those things, don't you? Nehemiah says, take a good look around and see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. And in this, Nehemiah is saying that, you know what, folks? There is more at stake here than just a dilapidated city, a devastated city. Because, yes, the city was in ruins and they're living in shame and disgrace. But what... Think about the bigger picture Nehemiah is saying. What did this say about them as God's people? If, the, if God's people are living in these kind of conditions, what does it say about them? But more importantly, what does this send then say about their God? As people look, you know, the, the, the nations surrounding them look at, the, you know, look at these people, the people of Israel, the people of God, they think, well, if you're living like this, well, your God can't be much good, can he? These broken down walls and charred gates of the city of Jerusalem point us to the fact that the people of God were in a mess. They were in a mess. They had lost their way. They appeared to have given up and given in to their enemies. No longer concerned with building God's kingdom and living to bring him glory, the people were just content to live their lives in the ruins. They were content to live their lives in the ruins. And in many ways, folks, I think this is a picture today of the people of God in many respects. That we are just content to live in the ruins. That we have lost our way. That we have been Concerned, we've, we've, we've not been concerned with building God's kingdom and living to bring him glory. And although we've been redeemed by God, 
in many fronts or on many fronts, we can certainly see that as the church, particularly here in the West, we have lost our way and we are in a mess. I think there's a case that can be made to say that we have lost sight of who we are and what God has called us to be and to do. Listen to what Peter says about the people of God, who we are and what we were called to do. He says in chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. If you want a summary verse of what the people of God is and what we're called to do, there it is. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim his excellencies, the excellencies of the one who reached into our lives and pulled us out of the depths of darkness and called us to live in the kingdom of his wonderful light. But in the face of opposition, we have retreated into the shadows. Afraid of what people might think about us or say about us. In a number of ways, the church in the West particularly has lost its distinctiveness. We've become much like the world. And that which should define us, like a wall defined a city back in Nehemiah's day, that which should define us has instead been broken down and compromised and eroded so that it's now often difficult to differentiate between God's people and everyone else. Now, Rebuilding a wall doesn't, doesn't then mean that we're to barricade ourselves off from the world. But what it does mean is that we are meant to stand out and be different. There needs to be a recognition that our lives, there is a, defi a, a, defining, a defining wall around our lives, a wall of holiness as the people of God. That we, are, we have been set apart as the people of God for him and for his glory and for his purposes. The Bible calls us to holiness. But the walls have been broken down. Nehemiah was a man whose heart's desire was to live for God and to bring glory to his name. We've already established that. He was a man who would stop at nothing to see that God's city was restored, that God's people was restored, and in so doing that God's glory would shine through. And he was willing to obey God no matter what, no matter what it would cost him personally to see this happen. And today, God is calling us as his people to be the same, to do the same, to be the Nehemiahs, to be the people who rebuild the walls, to, see, to, to be the people who rebuild the, the kingdom of God, the church, and to make it shine and stand forth so that God's glory is revealed and shone through that. Through us. You know, God's glory is no longer tied to a physical city or to a place of worship like the temple in Nehemiah's day, but it is in, instead tied up with his people. 
Folks, we need to realise this. Look at 2 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20. The Apostle Paul writes, For you, speaking about believers in Jesus, you were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So glorify God in your body. How do we glorify God? By living lives that honour him and please him in the strength that he gives us, in the enabling that he gives us by his Holy Spirit, his indwelling spirit. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do in all of life, do it all for the glory of God. God's glory is seen in his people as they submit to him and as they carry out the work of building his kingdom in the power that he gives us. There is no greater testimony of the power of God and of the glory of God than a person who is surrendered completely to God and is being used to do things that are completely beyond their abilities. But yet that is what God wants to do in our lives, just as he wanted to do in Nehemiah's life. Nehemiah wasn't a person who had you know, anything special that stood out about him. You, know, you look through the Bible and you look at all these people that God used. You know, when it comes down to it, there was nothing particularly special about these people. What made them special was the fact that God chose to work in them and through them. And God wants to do the same with us to build his kingdom, to shine his glory in our lives. Nehemiah knows this. He knew this. And that's why he calls the people of God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to rebuild the city of God. And in order to convince the people to undertake this daunting work, Nehemiah relates his own personal testimony of how God has been at work in the whole process. Look at verse 18. Nehemiah says, you know, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, an invitation, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, that God's glory may no longer be frowned upon and be, be, be looked upon with disdain. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Nehemiah assures the people that they can do this because God is with them. You can sense here what Nehemiah is saying to the people is this. He's saying, you know what? This, this is our time. This is our time because God has ordained it. God has want to use, use us at this particular point in time to begin to see, to shine his glory again to all the nations around about us. This is our time. God is calling us to be a part of his amazing purposes. He's inviting us to be part of something amazing and glorious. So how are you going to respond This is how God has already been at work leading up to this and he's going to continue to to do that. He's going to continue to, to be with us in this task. So what do you say? And the people say, let us rise up and build. And I love the last sentence of this verse 18 where it says these incredibly stirring works. Words. So he says, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. They strengthened their hands for the good work. In other words, what they did is right there and then at that particular point, they decided in their hearts that from that point on, this was going to take up their focus. This is what they were going to be about. And they were going to exert all of their efforts and all of their energies and all of their resources for this very purpose of rebuilding God's city, of restoring God's glory. They strengthened their hands for the good work. Let 
We have a picture here of the people of God resolutely committing themselves to this work and seeking also to spur each other on in that. That, that you know, strengthening their hands for the good work also has this kind of, uh, uh, of, of emphasis behind it of the people not only getting ready themselves but actually really urging one another, saying, hey, let's do this together. Let's do this together. And they were going to need to do this because as they strengthen their own hands for the work, so their opposition also strengthened. Look at verse 19 again. And it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite, here we hear these names again, Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, another person who joins in the opposition, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What? Excuse me, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? These enemies were no longer just displeased and disturbed. Now they had begun to verbally attack and threaten the people, jeering them, ridiculing them, accusing them of rebelling against the king, all with the sole aim of instilling fear in these people in order to get them to give up the work before they even start. Sanballat was most likely a, a governor of the local region just north of the kingdom of Judah, up around Samaria. Uh, Tobiah the Ammonite was probably a, a local governor of the region just to the, uh, to the east of, the, uh, the, of Judah. And Geshem the, the Arab was probably a local kind of chieftain who sort of like was head of a, like a, lo- a local coalition of tribes, if you, weren't, if, if you were. And they were, they, they were situated towards the southeast of the city. In other words, if you look at it, you see this kind of circling around the city and around the, the, the people of Judah. They were being surrounded by enemies. And their purpose was to prevent them from doing the work of God. And we as God's people today are going to have opposition. If we choose to stand for God and be about his work and live in our lives for his glory, then we can expect opposition. As followers of Jesus, when we encounter opposition from the world due to our faith, whether it be opposition in the form of of people and what they think about us and what they say about us, or whether it be opposition from the varied social and political systems and structures in the land in which we live, we need to recognise that behind this, behind this opposition, is our arch enemy, Satan. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 6 verse 12 where he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When we are in the business of seeking God and his glory and of building his kingdom, then we can reckon that we are in a spiritual battle and we are going to have to fight this battle with spiritual weapons. Spiritual resources are accessed through prayer and through a confident faith and trust in God. That's what we see in the example of Nehemiah's life. A person who had this incredible confidence in trust in God, but a person who was so dedicated to prayer, so recognising his own need for God in his life and for God to work. Because if God did not work, then things were not going to happen. And if God does not work for us, then things are not going to happen. And so we meet here on a, on, a, on a Sunday afternoon at five o'clock, not just to say, you know what, we've ticked this box this afternoon. As a church, we're meant to be a praying church, so let's tick that box. We can come along, do our prayer thing and go home. No, we get here on, on Sunday afternoons at five o'clock here in this place. There is, spirit, there is a spiritual battle going on. We are fighting a spiritual war. And whenever we get together in our connect groups or at home when we're praying on our own or praying with brothers and sisters in the Lord, we are fighting a spiritual battle against these evil powers that are at work in the world. But praise God that he is the one who already has defeated Satan and his schemes. Amen?
the thing that we must never, ever forget. And the one thing that Nehemiah is at great pains to emphasise, not only here in this passage, but throughout this, this whole book, is the fact that we can have this confident trust in the all-powerful and all-glorious God and his wonderful and gracious provision, because our God is with us. He's promised to be with us and fight for us. Nehemiah can confidently claim in the face of this opposition in verse 20, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Reminds me of Jesus' words to his disciples back in Matthew 16. Peter, you know, Jesus says to his disciples, you know, who do, who do people say that I am? Who do, who, who do they say that I am? And they say, oh, well, some say, you know, you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say you're a prophet and that sort of thing. Jesus said, okay, well, that's all well and good, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter quickly and boldly jumps up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, for man has not revealed this to you, but only God. And it is on that kind of testimony, that kind of belief, on that rock, Jesus says, I am going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And as we as God's people stand up and say, you know what? We believe that there is only one God. There is only one man whom God has provided for us as a mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, the passage says. There is only one Jesus and we have put our faith and our trust in him and we are confident in going about living for him and for his glory and being about his kingdom work because he is indeed the one true God, the only God. Do you believe that this morning? Do you really believe that in your hearts that Jesus is indeed our only hope? Do you believe that God is indeed today seated on his throne, ruling and reigning on high, and that the, the work that he has purposed to do in the world, he will accomplish that, and he'll do it through the people whom he calls into himself, who surrender themselves to his plans and purposes? Do you really believe that? Well, then let's live like it. Let's strengthen our hands for the good work, shall we? Let's be people who say, let us rise and build. For, for our God is with us. Our God will prosper us. Amen. Amen. And to come round to a time of communion around, around the table now. I'm going to need some stewards to come and, uh, and serve on that this morning. So just to invite uh, a few guys to come down and serve on the table. As we come around this table this morning, the table that the Lord Jesus himself instituted for, uh, for his followers, a table which is a, a, a memorial table reminding us of what Christ has done for us in giving his life as a ransom for us, as a payment for our sins and giving us a new life in himself. As we, as we come around this table this morning, we need to ask ourselves this question. Does our lives look more like Nehemiah's this morning or do they look more like the people of Israel and the broken down walls of the city? Only you can answer that. But the confident hope we have this morning is this, is that this table reminds us that there is forgiveness and new life, a fresh start to be found in Jesus Christ. That no matter what state your life looks like today, 
We can come anew to this table and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. To receive his cleansing and to receive again his power to go forth in his name and shine for him and for his glory. As we eat this bread this morning, let us remember that as we, as we partake of it, we partake of that life, that new life that is ours in Jesus. Remembering that you know, in, in him we find our strength to fight this good fight of faith. And as we drink the cup, we drink in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, finding cleansing from our sin, having our consciences cleansed, and reminding ourselves that we join with all of the saints in Jesus Christ who have been called to live for his honour and glory, that we are not isolated individuals, but that we are part of the family of God and together, together we go about living for him and serving him. And we distribute the elements. I invite you to take of the, uh, the bread and drink of the cup this morning in your own time. And that uh, at the end we will pray. I'll ask you to pass your cups towards the centre. We'll uh, we'll collect those and we'll sing our final song together.
What are the things we need to do in our lives to align our goals and our missions with the missions and the purposes of God? What does God want you to do in your life today and in these coming days? God promises to be with you in that. His son, the Lord Jesus Christ, said at the end of his earthly ministry with his disciples, go into all the world, be about my mission, make disciples of all nations. And his very last words were, and lo, or behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Isn't that a wonderful hope? Let's thank Jesus for that. Lord Jesus, we thank you today that you go with us and that you have promised to build your kingdom, your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Use us. Use us as your people. Prosper us in your work so that you get the glory and not us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please pass your cups to the uh, middle of the rows. The stewards will come around and collect those. And Janine and the team are going to lead us in our final song.